Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope and Anchor. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, it's been quite a week. Praise the Lord for good snowfall. I know not everyone's on board with that, but man, have I missed decent snow. So uh, praise the Lord. All good and, good and perfect gifts come down from the Father above. So we want to acknowledge that. Uh, hey, uh, one of my favorite roles as a pastor is... Uh, just the, the, the pastoral care aspect, the being able to sit with and disciple and listen to people that God has placed in my life, that God has placed in our fellowship. And uh, if I started meeting with you on a regular basis to kind of uh, get to know you and kind of discern where the Lord is at work in your life and where He's beckoning you to grow and to things to pursue, things like that, I usually ask a question about an imaginary table of mentors, like who's at your imaginary table of mentors, the people who have kind of spoken to your life, and we just go ahead and get Jesus out of the way, I mean not out of the way, we just agree that Jesus is at our table, but then secondarily, who's at that table? Now for me, I know who I uh, have kind of uh, listened to over the years who have uh, spoke to, spoken into my life, helped shaped my faith in Jesus. Uh, and uh, I reference a lot of those voices in my sermons as we go. But uh, one of those people is Philip Yancey. And I don't know if it, anyone here read any Philip Yancey. That guy is, a, is wise, gentle, and he has the, the sweetest, the second sweetest afro you've ever seen. Because there's always Bob Ross, right? But... <laughs> Philip Yancey has a pretty sweet afro. But anyway, I mentioned a quote from him that's really hung with me, uh, and I mentioned it last week, not knowing that I was going to be starting with it this week, because it's helpful to kind of frame our thinking and set our general direction as we jump into the story of Ruth this week. He says, I have nothing to offer God but my thirst. I have nothing to offer God but my thirst. My need. When I approach God, all I have is nothing. The best thing I can do is acknowledge my deep need when I come to God. I have nothing to offer God but my thirst. This is helpful because it sets our mind and our attention in the right direction as we join with Ruth in her story about her understanding her need, her lack, her vulnerability in this story. Here's what we know. To a certain extent, we all enter and exit the world the same way. We all enter and exit the world the same way. We bring nothing into the world and we will leave with nothing. This is perfectly remembered during the Lenten season. It is perfectly symbolized in the ashes of Ash Wednesday, which is past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And you know what happens on Ash Wednesday? We, we enter into this season of repentance and something happens. If you go to a church that does Ash Wednesday service, uh, they usually do ashes on your forehead. Has anyone ever had the ashes smudged on their forehead? What shape do they do it in? They do it in the shape of a cross. And this is important. There's a phrase said at, during, on Ash Wednesday, from dust you are made, and to dust you shall return. The ashes mixed with oil. The ashes and the oil marked upon us in the shape of the cross bring together important things. The ashes and the oil in the shape of a cross, they bring together our mortality and our salvation. They bring together our death from sin and our new life in Jesus Christ. As Job said in Job chapter 1, verse 21, I came naked from my mother's womb, 
and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Job's words are the words that are found on the lips of anyone who is following after Jesus. We must acknowledge our need. We must acknowledge that we are dust and we shall return to the dust. We enter into God's story just like Job. We enter into God's story stripped naked, bringing nothing with us. We offer nothing to God but our helplessness and our need. How does that make you feel? It's often not a good feeling. We feel unprepared, embarrassed, like we shouldn't be here. I have nothing, especially when it's a holy God. And our religious brain, which we talked a little bit about last week too, can kind of make this even more difficult because of who we imagine God to be and what His attitude is toward us. Because there's a conflict inside when we start to recognize our depravity. When we start to recognize our lack, we all the more feel like, I have no business approaching this God. I have no business approaching. So coming to terms with our helplessness and our need, it's a challenge. Like vulnerable newborns in a mother's loving arms, we are helpless in God's careful hands. I'll say that again because I think it's important. Like vulnerable newborns in a mother's loving arms, we are helpless in God's careful hands. And this is true, I believe, in two senses. There's two senses in which I believe this is true. First, we live and move and have our being in God and God alone. He is our creator and our sustainer, the one who gives us life and preserves our life. But secondly, we must consider our sin. We must consider the implications of the fall. To deny this is to cut ourselves off from that which God is doing in the world, what God desires to do in us through Christ. We must consider our sin and the implications of the fall. Our first parents, their rebellion exiled us. They set us far from home and set us up opposed to God, outsiders to a relationship with our Creator. Separated from God by sin, we were lost. We were doomed to dust. We were indeed nothing but ashes. All of our hopes, our dreams, our best intentions, our best stuff, nothing but ash. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, through His life, His death, and His resurrection, good news, we are now able to come back to God through faith. We're able to come back to God through faith in Jesus Christ by grace alone. But even still, we come to God our Father spiritually naked. Trust me, you don't have to come physically naked. Okay, seriously guys, keep your clothes on. But we have to come to God spiritually naked. What does it mean to be spiritually naked? We have to come to God spiritually naked, offering Him nothing but our brokenness, our poverty, and our need, holding up in our empty hands that which we have to offer. I need. As Adam and Eve were called from behind the bushes, as Adam and Eve were required to step from behind the bushes and strip off the fig leaf garments of their shame, they ultimately had to stand there naked before their Maker. They had to stand there, dust and ashes, 
before their Creator God without excuse. And my friends, so must we. So must we. Only then can, do, can God do that which only He can do in us. Dress us. We must enter God's salvation story. When we enter God's salvation story, we have nothing to offer God but our thirst. So, why am I saying all this? Because I believe that this salvation framework is important for us to understand as we approach the story of Ruth once again this week. This is the story of Ruth. This is the story of a helpless outsider who is helpless, yet is brought in and is saved. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. We'll start, finally, everyone's like, oh, six weeks in, now we're to Ruth chapter 2. How long is this series? Trust me, it's only two weeks after this one. Hang in there. Ruth chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. It's between Judges and the Samuels, if you're flipping through. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. When she, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, Aichi Wawa, who is that young woman over there? Is that in your Bible? <laughs> it must be Greek. Um, let's see. Uh, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has, ha she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, Come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in, in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, Let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles, and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up, and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, 
When she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked, and she said, The man I worked with today is named Boaz. Well, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing us kindness, his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, What's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with him until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in the early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found you a permanent home so that you'll be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of a pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in this town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then he, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light because, and, uh, got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, No one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, Bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? And Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, He gave me six scoops of barley and said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. So Ruth. Ruth. What do we know about Ruth? Ruth was a widow. Ruth was a widowed Moabite, a Moabitess, an immigrant in the land of Judah, in the city of Bethlehem. She was definitely in a vulnerable position. Why? Well, she was in among the Israelites. She was a Moabitess. She was despised by the Judean people. 
Uh, she was a widow, which meant she was unprotected because she had no husband and she had no father. And third, as a woman, she was disempowered in a man's world. So at three different levels, at least, she was vulnerable. Everything about Ruth's situation was precarious. She was displaced, relationally disrupted, and she was facing a very uncertain future. Ruth's local story plays out against the backdrop of the cosmic story of exile and return, of sin and salvation, both stories sharing themes and storylines. So what I'm saying is what we see in a microcosm in Ruth's experience is really the experience of all of us in that cosmic story. The story of Israel, the story of us, exile and return, of sin and salvation. Ruth's meeting of Boaz and finding him to be her family redeemer, or your Bible might say kinsman redeemer. You may be more familiar with that terminology. But finding Boaz and then discovering that he was her kinsman redeemer, it points us toward our coming to Jesus Christ and finding him to be our blood relative, our kinsman redeemer. So what is a kinsman redeemer? What is a kinsman redeemer? We don't have that in our Western society anymore. So what is a kinsman redeemer? If you've ever heard a teaching series on Ruth, I guarantee you, you've talked about kinsman redeemer. If you've ever been to a women's conference, you probably talked about Ruth. And you probably talked about Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. I just know these things. <laughs> kinsman redeemer has likely and rightly so been front and center in the conversation about Ruth and Boaz. Why? Because Jesus, our blood relative, is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who redeems us from our dislocation, our slavery, our death. He's the one who draws us near, who covers us, and gives us a new home. This is what Jesus does for each and every one who places their faith in Him. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery uh, explains the kinsman redeemer this way. The kinsman redeemer was a near blood relative and was always male. This near kinsman, or one of them if many, had a duty to protect his weaker relatives. He had to redeem property belonging to relatives when they had to sell lands or goods, or even their persons when they had sold themselves into slavery. For example, Jeremiah bought land belonging to his cousin at Anathoth because he was the kinsman redeemer. In the case of Ruth, it was important that the nearer relative give up, give up his right and duty in favor of Boaz. The kinsman redeemer was also duty-bound to come to the defense or aid of a relative in either a legal or an actual struggle. This means adding to Job's foresight of the redeemer on his side and underlines the Lord taking up the role in defense of his people when he saw no one else coming to their aid. This, hear this, that God would act as such a redeemer for us proved his family connection with those he was to save. It's important that God aligns himself through Jesus in the role of kinsman redeemer. That God would act as such a redeemer proved his family connection with those he was to save. Praise the Lord for this. So, last week I mentioned everyone in the story finds their own particular entry point. Do you remember what Naomi's entry point into this story was? Complaint. She was complaining against God because God had made her life very what? Bitter. Bitter. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, complaint. 
She had lost everything, and life had made her bitter. But this week, Ruth finds her place in the story in the context of need, of need. Here, another person at my imaginary table of mentors helps uh, frame our thinking. Eugene Peterson says, <laughs> everyone's like, oh, Eugene Peterson. There's no N.T. Wright this week, though, so sorry. Eugene Peterson, though, he helps us out, or he explains, Ruth got into the story by asking for what she wanted. At one point, approaching the dramatic climax in the story, Ruth was coached by her mother-in-law in how to approach Boaz. They were both aware that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, had a kinsman redeemer relationship to them, and knew that if their cards were played right, they could both be rescued from poverty and that, that Ruth could get a husband. The threshing floor was, the, was assigned as the place of their meeting. Peterson continues, The interesting thing in this part of the story is that Ruth does exactly what her mother-in-law tells her to do. She follows Naomi's instructions to the T, almost. She follows Ruth, uh, she does exactly what her mother-in-law tells her to do, except for the last item. Naomi had told Ruth, He will tell you what you are to do. But when the time came, Ruth took the initiative and told Boaz what she wanted him to do. She opens her mouth and says, Here's what I want from you. Spread your garment over me, or the word is used, Spread your wing over me. Spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your garment over me, for you are my redeemer. There, there is a wordplay here between Yahweh's wings, we read about, uh, and the wings or corners of Boaz's garment. Commentators frequently invoke ancient and modern Arabic custom as further evidence that the placing of a garment over a woman is a symbolic claim of marriage. We don't do that here. That's why I'm reading this. In other words, Ruth said, I want you to marry me. We don't hear this in the story because it's not real uh, overt, but in her saying, cover me with the corner of your garment, for you are my redeemer, she is saying to him, I want you to marry me. I want you to marry me. The exact correspondence of terminology between Ezekiel 16.8 and Ruth 3.9 is strong evidence that Ruth's request of Boaz is marriage. Uh, I, I marked this. Ezekiel 16.8 says, uh, And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So in this context, in this culture, Boaz knew exactly what was going on. He knew, understood clearly what Ruth was asking of him. I need you to marry me. I need your protection. You are my redeemer. Please cover me. Something subtle, which the whole story of Ruth, there's a subtlety to it, which is really, really charming, but it's powerful too. There's something subtle yet remarkable happening here in Ruth's story. Ruth is not a passive character. She's not just being carried along by circumstance. Ruth is not a passive character in this narrative. She is an active participant. As a woman, uh, it would have been very easy for Ruth to perceive herself as a victim. 
a victim of circumstance, a victim of situations out of her control, she could have seen her role as a victim. She could have resigned herself as one who didn't have a voice. She could have resigned herself as one whose fate was completely controlled by others, almost all men. But she didn't. She knew she had a part to play. She had lines to be spoken. She had situations before her, situations to be seized and outcomes to be pursued. She steps into her role and she speaks of her thirst. She speaks honestly and openly of her need. She speaks also of her hopes and of her desires. Peterson marvels at this dynamic. He says, this sudden intrusion of free will, Ruth assertively taking the initiative, would hardly have been lost, would hardly be lost on any who are paying attention to this story. Ruth is not a victim. Ruth is not a victim. Being in God's story does not mean passively letting things happen to us. It does not mean dumb submission or blind obedience. Alien though she is, and outside the defined covenant boundaries, she gets into the story when she steps out of the social roles in which she has been placed by others, and she speaks her own lines. She speaks her own lines. The consequence is that she enters into the center of the action and becomes an ancestor of the Messiah. Wow. As we enter into Ruth's world and as we hear Ruth's story, may we linger long enough to notice the parallel patterns. May we be attentive to the transferable truths which I am positive that God desires for us to see and to understand. First, God is redeeming us to his family in Jesus Christ. First, hear that. God is redeeming us to his family in Jesus Christ. You matter to God. You belong here. You are not lost. You are not alone. You are not hopeless. I hope you hear me say that. Because a lot of times, a lot of people feel pretty lost pretty alone, and pretty hopeless. So hear me say, you matter to God, and He is redeeming you to His family in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we have a part to play in God's story of salvation. We are not pawns in the game. We are not pawns in the game. You are not background noise. You matter to God. You matter. You've got a part to play in God's story of salvation. And then third, our thirst is recognized and satisfied in Jesus Christ. Something powerful happens when we acknowledge our need and when we offer that need to Him. We find that we are covered with His wing, we are dressed in His garment, and we are welcomed to His feast. When we offer Him all that we have, and that is our need. I can't help but fast forward in Ruth and Boaz's life. I don't want to spoil the story here, but... I can't help but fast forward. I can't help but think that Ruth, later in life, looked back on this part of her story and felt a sort of thrill. Had maybe a rush of blood as she recalled this situation. She's like, oh my, I can't believe I was so bold. <laughs> Can you, Boaz? <laughs> my, my heavens. Perhaps she told Boaz how nervous she was that day. Perhaps she said, I was so nervous. I can't believe I was so bold to speak up. To pursue you, to lay at your feet, to make myself available to you, to tell you what I wanted. I can't believe I did that. 
Whatever nervousness she may have felt, I guarantee she was glad that she was brave. Because her courage changed everything. She persevered in finding a marriage, yes, but she persevered in finding a home. She was taken in and she found a home. Some of us here are very aware of our need, but we're also very ashamed. We're aware of our need, but we're standing very far away because we are ashamed. We are ashamed, afraid to approach Jesus, nervous about what it would mean if we came close to God. I know you've been there. And I have a hunch that some of you are there today. We're afraid to come close because of our shame. What if I'm too broken? What if I'm too lost? What if I'm too far gone to ever be saved? I'm familiar with those questions. I too have wrestled with those same fears, those same doubts. Have you? What if I'm damaged goods? What if I'm outside God's plan? What if I don't have any lines to speak here? We've all wrestled with these fears and doubts. But each and every one of us, we have to eventually come to terms with our need and with our thirst. And when we do, we find we are in the perfect place to come close. We have nothing to offer God but our thirst. May we all have the boldness of Ruth. May we all acknowledge our thirst. May we all find the courage to name our need. And then may we all come and lay ourselves at Jesus' feet and find ourselves redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the kindness you've shown us in this, this simple story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. God, I love how this story plays out in this local context, this local place and particular time. But it points our attention to this, this cosmic stage, this, this grand scale in which your meta-narrative of salvation is playing out. A story that in, includes and invites all of us in. That you sent Jesus, our, our blood relative, to live among us to die for us and to be raised again so that we too could be led into new life through faith. So, God, I pray that each person here would see that clearly and see that rightly. I, there's a strange tension here that we have to grow somehow comfortable with or accustomed to, that we must be aware of our sin, of our brokenness, of our dislocation. But we also must understand that our acknowledgement of those things gives us entrance into the salvation story that you've been telling from the foundations of the world, that you're telling in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for my friends here today that are maybe standing far away, feeling so lost and so vulnerable and so ashamed. God, I pray today that you give them the courage they need to come close, to uncover, to lay at your feet, to have you call to them, speak to them, cover them, and give them a home as well. Lord, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ. I pray that uh, for those who've been following Jesus a long time, I pray that we'd hear that in a fresh way and understand the, the, the beauty and the, the, the magnitude of what you've accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, what you and your mercy were willing to do for us in our great need. 
I also pray for my friends who've uh, maybe never followed Jesus or they've maybe been uh, letting that relationship grow pretty cold because of what they've done or how they perceive who they are. God, I pray that you'd speak to their heart this morning. Lord, and may we all come close and may we all be redeemed, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to sit with this for just a moment. Maybe there's a conversation you, you need to have with the Lord. This is a perfect time to enter into prayer, to say those words, to speak your lines. Here we all lie at Christ's feet. Here we all acknowledge our need. So let's take a moment, speak to the Lord, 